Grab your trowel and a cup of coffee. You're listening to Archeo Cafe. I'm your host, Otis Crandell. Welcome to another episode of Archeo Cafe. I'm Otis, and today I'm talking with Eldon Yellowhorn at Simon Fraser University in Burnaby, Canada. Welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Uh, good morning from my side. <laughs> it's, it's great to have you here today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I'm often interested in how other archaeologists initially got started in archaeology. What first got you interested in archaeology? Uh, well, there's lots of influences. Uh, when I was growing up, because I was, um, I grew up on a farm, a very rural community, and uh, there was just lots of opportunities for a child like me to go out and explore the uh, prairie and woodlands around my area. And uh, yeah, there was just something that always brought me outside. And so I just carried that on in, into my adult life where uh, my earliest university training was in earth sciences, earth sciences. Uh, mm -hmm. I enjoyed uh, geology and geography and uh, just going out there. I even I even uh, got interested in paleontology as well. So one summer I ended up uh, helping excavate a dinosaur in the Badlands in southern Alberta. All right. What did you find there? Well, they're, they're, oh, the Badlands are just full of mm -hmm. dinosaur fossils. Uh, but the, the one that we were excavating is known as a, a hooded duckbill dinosaur. Okay. Yeah, they were like vegetarians. They were like cows. They they, mm -hmm. they lived uh, in swampy areas and uh, and kind of grazed on uh, vegetation under underwater mm -hmm. and in the uh, area around the swamps. Okay. And how old were you at the time? I guess that was at an undergrad level? Yeah, yeah. I was uh, an undergraduate at the uh, University of Calgary in 1980. And then that's when I got the... Well, that 1980, that was the first time I got my I got a job in archaeology. But uh, the following okay. summer, 1981, was when I was doing the paleontology work. When you were a kid, though, did you visit any archaeological sites or, or see archaeological remains or... It was mostly just an attraction to the outdoors at that time. Yeah, it was mostly just an attraction to the outdoors. You know, it was much later that I started getting in. Growing up, I used to often hear uh, my parents and their friends talking about the old days, you know, and, and for them, the old days was talking about how our ancestors used to live uh, in their mobile cultures with uh, teepees and uh, hunting bison. Uh, and so I, I kind of got grew up knowing that the way I lived wasn't always the way uh, people lived. You know, that at one point we didn't live on reserves, and uh, you know we had a different life way. And so that kind of kept me uh, interested in learning more about like what was it that changed so that we no longer live that way. What would you say is the most interesting place that you've done archaeological field work? Uh, well, one uh, summer way back in 1988, I actually got a uh, 
a fellowship with the Smithsonian Institution. And as, as uh, they offered me several projects that I could work on, and, and the one that I chose was to work with their curator of North American archaeology at a site he was excavating in Colorado. And this was a very uh, early, early Holocene uh, site. You know, the, the bison that we were excavating were of an extinct species. Uh, but people were new on the scene at that point, and uh, they were just, you know, like leaving their traces in the landscape. And so this uh, bison kill site was uh, an extremely uh, special find. Wow. It's interesting. I, I think that there's a lot of interesting sites out there, and I think everyone's got a their that one or two sites that they say that was really interesting. And so it's, it's always interesting to hear for them. What was that really interesting site? Oh yeah. I mean the, uh, the work that I did in Colorado, that was really what tipped the scales for me because up until then, you know, I was uh, working in a museum, you know, and I thought museum uh, studies was going to be where I would end up. But then uh, when I got the uh, fellowship, uh, it changed everything for me, you know. I, once I finished that and I got back to Canada, uh, I knew archaeology was going to be my career. Yeah, I think there's a big difference between doing field work and doing museum work and lab work. There's, I think, there's just something about being out in in the field, regardless of what you're doing. If it's geology, archaeology, forestry, there's just something about being out there that I think is really attractive for a lot of people. Oh, I definitely agree. I mean, it's certainly the case with, with me. I was always an outdoor enthusiast. And even even outside of archaeology, I often, uh, with my friends and I, we'd go on camping trips or canoe trips, uh, and you know, we'd go on ski trips in the wintertime. We always refer to oh, yeah. them as our afternoon adventures. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah. You've recently been working on the Missing Children's Project. Could you tell us a bit about this project? Oh, sure. You know, uh, when I first uh, became a professor, I got a faculty appointment at uh, Simon Fraser University. Uh, so I had to develop a, a research program. And I, I started doing a historical archaeology. And the places that I started was on the reserve I'm from uh, in southern Alberta. And I went down there to do a historical archaeology project for the community because um, there there's no uh, community archives and there are, there are no publications that talk explicitly about the history of our community. So uh, looking at it through uh, archaeology was a good way because it allowed me to uh, pull in uh, oral history interviews, uh, archival research, and uh, material culture studies. And between these three different data sets, uh, I could triangulate and come to a more fulsome picture of the uh, history of our community. But one of the sites that I excavated was uh, the site of the uh, Church of England residential school that was built on our reserve in 1897. And so I was interested to see what, what kind of impact that had on our community. But this was before the the TRC and all that. So my uh, research objectives were much more parochial, more uh, about my uh, own interests and how uh, the 
geography of domestic geography was influenced by uh, the presence of this school, and uh, so as a result of that, uh, I got a when the TRC got started, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission began the uh, Missing Children's Project, and they knew about the work I had already done at uh, Brockett, where I did the excavations. Mm-hmm. And they invited me to participate in the Missing Children's Project because a lot of the things that they were doing were exactly the the sorts of things I was doing, uh, archival work, uh, material culture studies, and oral history interviews. So this was something that uh, I was already doing, and so they invited me to uh, join their Missing Children's Project in 2009. What is your role in the project now, or what kind of things do you do within the project? Well, the, the Missing Children's Project had a, a shelf life because it was part of the TRC. And so when the TRC was uh, creating its final report, the work that we were doing uh, was included in the final report. Uh, but then uh, afterwards, uh, I started working on it uh, more as an academic uh, investigator where I was uh, interested in finding about the uh, the ways that the school, you know, the, the patterns of uh, education and life ways in the schools, uh, how people experienced their time at, at these residential schools. So I don't, uh, the, the Missing Children's Project wrapped up when the uh, TRC submitted its final report. So after that, it kind of became more of an independent uh, project for myself. And for the benefit of our listeners, could you briefly tell us what are the calls to action 71 to 76 in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's final report? Oh, sure. Uh, so the calls to action 71 to 76 uh, of the TRC final report uh, are about missing children and burial information. And call to action 71, it starts off with uh, a request to the coroners and provincial vital statistic agencies uh, to provide the uh, records of Aboriginal children who died in care uh, of residential school authorities, and that these uh, documents should be uh, all made available to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. Uh, 72 is that uh, call to uh, create the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation to allow it to develop and maintain the uh, registry of established uh, by the TRC for the Registry of uh, Student je- student Deaths. Uh, and 73 uh, calls upon the federal government to work with churches and Aboriginal communities and, and former residential schools students to establish uh, an online and maintain an online registry of residential school cemeteries and also uh, where possible to plot maps showing the location of deceased residential school children. Uh, 74 is uh, about the federal government to work with uh, churches and Aboriginal communities to inform the families of children who died at residential schools of the child's burial location and to respond to families' wishes for appropriate commemoration ceremonies and markers 
and reburial in home communities uh, were requested. So this actually means uh, exhuming and, and repatriating uh, human remains. Uh, 75 is uh, calls upon the federal government and uh, other levels of government to work with church and Aboriginal communities and former students, and, and also current landowners to implement strategies for the ongoing identification document documentation, maintenance, commemoration, and protection of residential school cemeteries. Uh, on sites at, at which residential schools, school children were buried, uh, sometimes after the schools were closed, these lands were just decommissioned and parceled off into small sections and sold to private owners. Uh, and this included the cemetery. So a lot of these cemeteries are now on, on private land. Wow. And uh, 76... Uh, Calls for call to action is for maintaining, commemorating, protecting residential school cemeteries, uh, and to adopt strategies uh, in accordance with the principles of community, Aboriginal communities leading the development of the strategies, and that information should be uh, sought from residential school survivors and knowledge keepers, and that Aboriginal protocols be respected before any potentially invasive technique, inspection, technical inspection and investigation of a cemetery. So that would be something like uh, what we're doing now, you know. Uh, we're we're in investigating a cemetery, but we're also deeply involved with uh, families and uh, survivor groups that uh, help us to uh, get direction for the, for the project that we're working on. Oh. Why are residential school cemeteries often not considered either forensic crime scenes or historical burials? Uh, well, I think for, to answer that, you have to uh, understand the historic treatment of Aboriginal people in Canada and uh, the that history is not a is not a pretty picture. Uh, mm -hmm. Aboriginal people have been marginalized and pushed to the side and ignored. Uh, yeah, in fact, when in the late 19th century, when Canada was being formed, uh, the anthropological discourse of the era used to refer to uh, Indigenous people in North America as the vanishing race because wherever white people uh, went to, the Indians disappeared. And it was just assumed that eventually they would all disappear. And so these reserves that were created uh, for us were really just a, a buy station, a way station on our route to extinction. That this, These reserves would be the, uh, the places where indigenous people would live out the last of their days. And then once, the, uh, once they had all died, that reserve land could be then opened up for white settlement, and uh, so when you when you have a, a, a reigning policy like that, uh, you're not entirely going to be setting aside spaces for for indigenous people or for their uh, or their cemeteries or anything else about their lives. So that's uh, that really is the mindset that was. Uh, informing uh, officials who created these schools and uh, 
subsequently when they when they were closed uh they weren't uh, they weren't treated very respectfully what are some of the goals of exhuming the unmarked burials at residential schools uh well for this one you know we are we are uh Guided by uh, another another United Nations declaration, you know the uh, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of the Child, which was adopted by the UN General Assembly in uh, 19, the 1980s, and in that one, Article Eight of uh, that convention is that every child has a, a right to an identity. And if the state is implicated in depriving that child of their identity, then the state must also act hastily to restore that child's identity. So all of these children who have been buried in these schools have been deprived of their identities. And that's the work that we are doing is to, uh, number one, restore their identities because that. Well, that goes a long way to restoring the dignity of, uh, of that child that was buried there. Mm-hmm. How can archaeologists play a part in calls to action 71 to 76? Uh, well, archaeologists are ideally situated to respond to these. Uh, you know, the, a big part of our uh, debate right now that's taking place in Canada is about the church records. And the church or the orders that ran these uh, schools kept records about children who attended their deaths and stuff like this, but they've been very reluctant to share those uh, records with Native communities and uh, others. Uh, Well, for archaeologists, uh, that would be immaterial because we are explicitly trained to work in the absence of documentary records. So Mm -hmm. for us, uh, we can continue on our work. It doesn't impede our work. And and we really can get a, we can work around that reluctance on the part of uh, churches to share what documents they have. Uh, We can proceed, we can can use uh, things such as DNA analysis to make connections with living relatives. And even if we don't have a, a DNA sample to uh, compare with what we what we find in, in, you know, like in a grave, the person who was buried there, uh, we can also make a very clear determination of where they came from originally because we use a technique called isotope, oxygen isotope analysis. And this comes to through the water that we drink. Wherever that person spent their early life, the local chemistry of the water will be preserved in, the, in their teeth. And as they grow older and new teeth, new enamel is formed, it will then be formed using the water of wherever they live. So... If they're at the residential school, and uh, but if we, you know, take a sample from their teeth and examine the uh, oxygen isotopes, we can 
make a very accurate geographical determination of where that child originated. I guess there's also a lot of other methods that can be applied, like determining the age, uh, and that may match people to records. Yes. You know, we have a physical anthropologist and forensic anthropologist who are working with us, and that's specifically why, uh, is to, you know, you in order to determine things such as age, gender, you you have to excavate the uh, graves and you actually uh, examine the, the remains. Uh, but a forensic anthropologist would also be able to tell us how that child died and uh, if there was any uh, traumatic injuries that were associated with it or, uh, you know, the result of accident. Or even ones that occurred prior to death. Yes, yes. All of that uh, would be, uh, we would be able to uh, examine. Mm-hmm. I've seen recently that there's a lot of use of ground penetrating radar to identify where burials are, particularly the ones that are not marked. Yeah. I mean, that is uh, right now the gold standard for determining uh, you know, where unmarked burials are located. Uh, but it, only, it is only one technique that we should use. I mean, there's a starting point, but you know, because we're dealing with uh, things that are very traumatic for people, you know, you, you want to be very confident in your observations before you start making uh, statements. So you do the ground penetrating radar for sure, but then it's always best to then uh, use other techniques to corroborate uh, what you're finding there. You know, uh, one of them could be just like a, a surface visual inspection, mm-hmm. uh, but you can also use drone technology to do an aerial survey. And typically you would do it at different times of the day because light changes, light conditions change through the day. So things that might not be visible in the morning would be evident mm. in the afternoon or vice versa. Uh, you could also use a, Another technique, which is called gradiometry, and gradiometry measures the magnetic fabric of the soil. So if there's any uh, disruption in, in that uh, magnet, magnetism, it'll, be, it'll show up. Uh, so, you know, yeah, you want to, you want to be very co- confident about your statements because you don't want to unnecessarily traumatize people. Right. I guess it's good that there are these alternatives and that there's a lot of different things that can be used, particularly in lack of the documents that might not be accessible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, like this whole goes right back to our own discipline because now, you know, people are really uh, taking issue with the whole idea of prehistory, you know. there is no place now that we cannot uh, examine with archaeological methods and uh, be able to make statements about the people who lived there. So, uh, in fact, uh, there is no such thing as prehistory. You know, we, we can access yeah. it all. In fact, as archaeologists, we're explicitly trained to uh, elicit history out of unwritten sources. Yeah, I suppose that in a way archaeology is writing histories exactly yeah it's telling us stories 
that we don't have written down. It may be verifying or, or not verifying written stories or oral stories. Uh, I think it's a, it's a tool for telling stories and filling out history. Yeah. You know, I'm even, I'm using now uh, archaeology technique to actually determine how old some of our oral narratives are. I can now, you know, like before people used to always uh, talk about oral narratives as being uh, outside the realm of chronology, that mythology just existed in this timeless uh, sphere. Uh, but then I started to challenge that, you know, I I started using uh, archaeological methods and uh, now I can actually say, you know, like this story comes to us from uh, a thousand years ago. This story comes from us to us from 2000 years ago or 3000 years. I can actually put uh, those kind of dates to some of our stories. Yeah, I think, I think this was a quite common idea that mythology everywhere in the world was just stories that it just had a, a meaning, but that it wasn't to be taken literally but that in fact a lot of mythology was in fact real things it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't just made it may have been told to pass along a moral of the story but the, yeah. the things really did happen and i think it's just a matter of how different types of history are recorded like written history also doesn't tell us everything the people that wrote it down had a specific reason for writing specific things and not other things. Yeah. So there's no sort of form of history that includes everything. It's a matter of what did the people recording it, what was important for them to pass along, and they used what methods were available to record and pass along history. You know, to, yeah, um, you know, it's just like they say that, a, like a photograph, a photograph shows you everything, but it tells you nothing. Right, right. And it only tells you at one specific moment in time from one yeah. perspective. You don't know what, what was behind the guy that took the photo. Exactly. You, know. you don't know what preceded the, the event, you know, right. that was photographed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, true. I think they can be used to tell us part of a story. And the same with written documents. The other interesting thing with written documents is that they're not always fact. I mean, sometimes they make up stuff as well. You know, and they wrote it down on paper. Oh, they they embellished their own records. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sometimes even the stuff that's written down was not observed by the writer. It may have been they may have heard it from someone who heard it from someone else. So, in a, essence, they're they're writing down a form of oral history. Yeah, um, and it, and a lot of that type of history is very uh, is vicarious. You know, the person yeah. who is recording the history may not have been the person who experienced it. I think Herodotus, he's sometimes considered the, I guess, the father of history. And he did that. He had a lot of secondhand information that he wrote down. And sometimes it was misinterpreted for various reasons. Because, sometimes because it got told through someone else, it got translated and there was something lost in translation. Or maybe there might have been a political reason for writing something else down differently. But yeah, he committed that same error. Or the people that read his stuff commit the error of assuming that everything was written down 
was happened exactly as written. Yeah, that it was all happening in, in verbatim. He carried that. Uh, he yeah. copied everything and <laughs> but took it accurate, like a, a court stenographer. You know, took a record of everything right, that was right. happening. <laughs> and I think that's a thing that we assume that if it's written down, it it was fact. And well, well, yeah. Why might it not be fact? And what errors could have occurred or misinterpretations, particularly when you change a language. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I read a, I did an article about a fur trader, the first Anglophone who left uh, Hudson's Bay to go into the interior and uh, visit the people on the plains, and uh, in 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 doing the doing the research, I I came to the conclusion that the fellow who actually uh, made the journey was himself uh, illiterate, uh, and that uh, mm. he narrated his whole journal after the fact to his uh, superiors who wrote it down uh but the and i kind of why would they why would they choose somebody who's illiterate to go on this journey and then it, it suddenly occurred to me well this fellow was had probably learned the cree language very well because oh, the people that they sent him into the interior with were a band of cree indians who were traders and would go into the interior and do their trading so uh, he was going to be living and working with Cree people, and of course, he they, he would have to know their language, and then, so that's probably the reason that they sent him out to uh, go on that. All right, okay, yeah, but you'd have to sort of wonder how good was his memory as well. Well, yeah, I mean, his memory was probably good because uh, everything he was uh, doing was so. Uh, remarkable you know and it was mm -hmm. all new to him it was like a, uh, every every time he opened his eyes he was seeing something new you know mm -hmm. so it, it was a remarkable journey and and he probably like in his uh in his memory you know he kept in but what would have changed were the, like the dates because he oh, could okay. never really be certain what date he uh met certain people or an event occurs. So a lot of the dates that he was using were were quite arbitrary. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's an interesting thing to think about, like that type of history, which someone saw, remembered, and then narrated to someone versus a lot of forms of oral history, which were used in the past and, and sometimes today. Yeah. Where it's memorized. And I think there's a lot of, um, uh, Methods of memorizing it so it doesn't change. Yeah, because I mean, like a lot of these mythologies, uh, the stories, they were inspired by real events, but right. the the passage of time obscures the event, and what we are left with uh, is the mythology, and and the mythology is like a memory of that original event, and so what we try to do is to. Uh, Re reverse engineer, you know, what was the event that was commemorated in this story, you know, and uh, that uh, I think is a good area of you know, research. Yeah, well, I think it's a, a whole field of research now of trying to, I guess, in a way, translate one form of history to another form and looking at oral history and using that as a tool to, to know about the past. And I think yeah. it's a whole field of study now. Yeah, and you know, like, things have changed because, uh, like for example, uh, the Blackfoot community I'm from, you know, they thought the world was flat and they thought the sky was flat, you know. But even though they were, they saw this, uh, you know, they made observations that were still very accurate, and 
when you when you translate their view of the universe, like this flat sky and above a flat earth, mm-hmm. uh, the stories that they tell uh, still make sense in our Copernican view of the universe, mm-hmm. you know, with the earth at the center of, or the sun at the center and the earth is kind of being one body orbiting the sun, you know, yeah. <laughs> uh, we can still make sense of what was, uh, what was being told. <laughs> Do you have any advice for other archeologists who would like to get involved with the missing children project or similar initiatives? Well, uh, First of all, you have to uh, be very strong to deal with it because it is a very sad, it is sad work, mm-hmm. you know. So you have to be able to deal with that kind of uh, emotion. Uh, and, you know, this was something that, you know, when I first started working on it, it, it did make me sad all the time, you know, like every time we... Uh, encountered another cemetery and, you know you think about the children who are buried there and the families who lost them yeah it used to it used to, it used to just make me really sad and then eventually I just said to myself well goodness gracious I'm an archaeologist I can do something about this and, you know so I started I started working on this and it is you know emotionally trying but at the same time it's also uh, very uh, rewarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, like uh, when you when you make a connection between some children and their families. You know, uh, like a uh, a recent case where a friend of mine, uh, whose uncle died at a school when he was fourteen years old. She never knew him. She only ever heard about him from her mother. And uh, I was able to give her the death records and to tell them, tell her that you know this is where your relative is buried. Mm-hmm. She, they were very grateful. She was very grateful to to find that out. And sometimes even just giving people, you know, the the cause of death, uh, kind of answers questions that they'd been asking themselves forever. Do you work a lot with? informing the people once you've established the the identity of some of the, the children in the graves? Uh, yeah, well, we haven't gotten to that point yet, but we are already mm-hmm. uh, getting inquiries from people who have lost relatives and, and who are certain that they're buried at this school, you know. So uh, is this is something that's off in the future, but that is our intent is to make those uh, connections and to reestablish the uh, family connections that way. Yeah. I can imagine that it must be emotionally taxing to to work on that type of topic where you know that something really bad has happened and, and to be seeing it all the time. It's, it is good that you, at the end you know that it's helping someone else. Yeah, and you know, like uh, I have a I have a young nephew who's my uh, my sister's grandson, and uh, I'm very close to him. So it's it's kind of like uh, after after doing doing that one trip where it was just like dealing with uh, dead children all the time. It was uh, a real change to come to come here, and he happened to be coming out to visit, and it was just so 
delightful to spend time with him. Yeah. Well, I guess we've come to the end of the episode. It's been an interesting and informative talk. Uh, thanks for taking the time today to talk about your work and about how other archaeologists can possibly get involved in similar work. I think that the work you're doing shows an interesting and practical application of archaeology. I think so too. You know, I, 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 this is. I mean, I've always been rewarded with my work in archaeology. It's like every summer I used to go, I used to look forward to going out to the field because I always knew I was going to find something new and different and interesting. And so it kept that, my sense of wonder always high, you know, and this work that I'm doing now is a little different, but it's no less rewarding. I think, one of the things I also liked about archaeology is that anything that you found or uh, determined through some analyses or something else, it was, it was a story and you were you were creating a story or filling in part of a story. So I think it's really interesting, your work, that you're filling in a large part of these children's story. Yeah, that's true, and and, and you know, I'm, I'm just kind of humbled that I'm able to contribute a small part to that. Well, thanks for coming on today and talking about it. It's been interesting, and I hope it will inspire some other people to, to get involved in similar work. Me too. Thank you for uh, inviting me. Yeah, it was great to have you here. Have a nice day. You too. Bye now. You've been listening to the Archeo Cafe podcast. For more information and news, check out our website or social media pages. Links can be found in the episode notes or simply by searching online for Archeo Cafe podcast. If you have any questions or comments for the presenters or guest speakers, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, archaeology is sort of like history, but for people who don't like to be stuck indoors all the time. <laughs>